Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Medicine, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark, one of the hosts on the channel, and today we'll be talking to Joy Canablo about her new book, The Architecture of Good Behavior, Psychology and Modern Institutional Design in Postwar America. Joy, welcome to the show. Thank you. I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Yeah, I um, began my career as an architect, actually. I went to Cornell University, and I have a professional degree from there. After that, I went on to work very briefly um, and bemusedly encountering uh, federally funded housing. From there, I decided to go back to Yale and see if I couldn't figure out why things were the way they were, which is, of course, longer and fun stories. Um, And I began to work on a British architectural theorist, Robin Evans, And um, that was a a rewarding experience at Yale, working with Peggy Deemer. And from there, I went to Princeton University to do my PhD in the history of architecture and encountered Robert uh, Gutman. And this was an important decision moment for me to continue to study this British theorist in a sort of um, existential phenomenology kind of mode or to turn my own lens on the material that he was critical of. Um, He'd been writing of Parker Morris reports and things like that. So um, to instead critique the sort of government apparatus of social science um, instead. And and I think Gutman was pretty influential in uh, pushing me toward doing that rather than just studying the theorist. So how how did you come to write The Architecture of Good Behavior? How did that grow out of your previous um, research and experiences? Yeah. um, So as I say, I kind of washed up at Princeton uh, with this decision before me. And from there encountered yet another important figure, uh, Graham Burnett, who was part of the history of science program at Princeton. And that just gave me so many tools to understand this taboo of environmental psychology within the more uh, art historical side of architecture. And I took a course with him on Uh, history of science and society, and got really interested in the way that explained um, Oscar Newman's work, the way that it explained the theories of defensible space, which I can talk about, which had just been, Mm -hmm. you know, half the field seemed to think he was great, and half the field seemed to think he was so bad as to be undiscussable. So um, Graham's work and and the the history of science group really showed me that, no, you know, it's, it's politically useful, it's socially useful, common sense has a certain kind of power and that there was a lot to say in between. So let's kind of dig into the book here. So um, the very, the, the book opens with a discussion of the Attica prison uprising. I wonder um, why did you choose that as a beginning and, and what does that historical event tell us about sort of the state of environmental psychology in the second half of the 20th century? Yeah. um, It seemed a really good, very vivid, uh, very upsetting way to open the book because it quickly showed, you know, less, uh, you know, 
that prisons were inhumane, which I, I believe, um, but more that architecture didn't seem to want to say it. And so this reasonably progressive architecture critic, Ada Louise Huxtable, um, comes in and says, oh, you know, in response to these uh, riots over inhumane conditions, what we should do is apply more behavioral science, not abolish prisons, not seek to reform the justice system, these kinds of things, just um, try to make prisons not seem so upsetting to the inmates. And that just really struck me as um, the, the thing that I was getting at as to, you know, what is the political use of psychology through the built environment? How um, they can be used, or at least, you know, success, successfully or not, that's another question that the that I certainly mm-hmm. leave um, unresolved, you know, whether this stuff works. I get asked that a lot. What does this stuff work? I don't know. Um, that's kind of a complicated question. But, um, but, but what was really interesting to me was the way that it operated uh, politically and within the field and the way that it was used to gain funding for various kinds of pro- projects that architects were doing. So after, after the opening, the book is sort of organized as a series of case studies of types of institutions that received federal funding after World War II, and you call these institutional typologies, um, and they are community hospitals, community mental health centers, therapeutic prisons, and public housing. Can you tell us a little bit about each one and sort of how these institutional typologies relate to one another? Yeah, um, it's, it's certainly a huge question, you know, com- coming to this subject and wanting to say something more than just write about Clyde Dorset, who worked on the community mental health centers, which was the first case I got excited about, um, was certainly a challenge trying to figure out how to make a big enough argument, but, but one that I could complete in one book. And so um, I settled on the idea of moving through various legislation in part because uh, the community mental health centers consistently were objecting to the Hilberton Hospital construction. And so it was sort of a natural thing to start to, to move to the other legislation that folks were talking about in the period, uh, the successes and failures. And so the book uh, begins with kind of the first of those, the uh, post-war hospital construction. Um, it's enmeshment in the semi-failed uh, New Deal um, legislation. It comes after the war, but healthcare had never been passed prior to um, the war. And not to get into another much longer story, it's sort of hard to stick mm-hmm. to the point. But you know, um, mm-hmm. the American Medical Association defeating national health insurance and instead saying, "Well, we could build hospitals." Um, so, so that case of trying to use uh, what was a very pretty young field of environmental psychology in '46, you know, it was mostly public relations expertise that I look at in the hospital case, trying to think about, you know, surveying potential community um, supporters, trying to think about uh, what patients would see in this experience of a hospital, and it really not being what I would have expected as. Um, sort of, you know, uh, being upset about new medical technology, it was really a concern about two things. It was a concern about uh, the cost being too high, that, that hospital care would be expensive, and that they would be confined there, that they would lose their freedoms. And so the design of the buildings to try to look both affordable and legible. Um, and so the book goes through that and the way that that produced these community hospitals, that then for the second case of community mental health centers had become abhorrent by the 60s. Uh, and so the question of where that legislation comes from is, yes, you know, the deinstitutionalization efforts of the uh, 
Group for the Advancement of Psychology, GAP, um, as well as being enabled by um, Thorazine and other kinds of psychotropic medications. But, you know, the question of the design and why they looked the way they did was partly architectural fashion, but partly an attempt to not look like Hilburton hospitals. Um, mm. So the next case is, um, right, is the prisons, which then, you know, moving forward through time moves away from a moment of big federal legislation to construct lots of buildings. So it, it started to get a little bit more complicated. Um, but it was the case that was kind of looking at the open institutions of the mental health centers and saying, oh, we could do that for prisons. The appeal of, um, you know, the appearance of freedom, the appeal of consumer choice, all these kinds of things, inspiring the, the Federal Bureau of Prisons, not so much the states, but inspiring the Federal Bureau of Prisons to try to do the same kind of thing and, and say, you know, uh, glass prisons or so the Leesburg, New Jersey facilities earlier, but these kinds of ideas of glass prisons or open prisons and to try to um, remove the negative effects of institutions. Um, and from there, then... I go into, you know, a very different engagement with a federal priority, the case of Oscar Newman, um, the crime prevention through environmental design, and the way that he kind of set out to do something more uh, positive and more, he was interested in building community and making housing for, um, he was really interested in these little enclaves that he'd seen in Europe when he went there to work on the Team 10 uh, conference. And so he um, went, the, the, sto- the first, full, I'm trying to be brief, the full story is, of course, in the book. But mm-hmm. so he went to the National Institute mm-hmm. of Mental Health, as he had heard other people being able to do to get this funding and was sort of sent away because by the late 60s, they didn't have as deep of pockets uh, and was encouraged to go over to the Law Enforcement Assistance Administration. Some of my acronyms may be off, but the LEAA. Um, went over to them (laughs) and they said, sure, but, you know, we want you to work on crime deterrence. And so, you know, the rest is history. But the the point of being a historian and looking at these things is seeing the way that, you know, Newman didn't really set out to accelerate the neoliberal state by having people self-police each other, right? That's not, (laughs) you know, it's not all individual (laughs) choice. Um, So, yeah. So that case. um, And then from there, uh, The last case in the book is about urbanism in general and looks at what the National Institute of Mental Health was funding in terms of their um, urban problems research and makes a a larger argument that then ties the book back uh, to this question of the architecture of good intentions, which we can get to in a moment. This idea Mm -hmm. of um, Peter Eisenman and Mario Gandalsonis and their brand of research, which was more... um, more in line with this idea in architecture that's called autonomy, where the form of the building should be appreciated for itself and should operate on its own without these kinds of political and social entanglements. And from my experience uh, being educated by these uh, proponents of this field, uh, Colin Rowe had taught at Cornell long before I got there, but uh, his, his um, legacy was certainly around the place when I was a little undergrad. Um, it, w- it was quite clear that it was not because they weren't interested in social issues. And it was clearly not the case that Colin Rowe was, was not interested in social issues. It was far more a following of perhaps um, Karl Popper's work and suggesting that, you know, that way lies fascism, that to try to use buildings to manipulate people's emotions 
uh, is not necessarily, uh, well, it's more than, it's more than just, uh, tacky or something, you know, your heart on your sleeve kind of thing that now it sort of seems that the autonomy people are upset about it. It was really quite a statement that, you know, the, the free and open society required architects to not do that. And so the last chapter of the book kind of tries to bring us back to that big divide in architecture between, you know, the architecture of good intentions, the modern side of wanting to, to use architecture to change society, and the other side that reacted against that. So it kind of comes to that moment just before that split and talks about the state of that debate in architecture and talks about um, some work that Peter Eisenman and Mario Gandolsonis was did that was funded by the National Institute of Mental Health looking at psychology, but looking at it as a grammar. And that um, sort of closes my phase of study in architectural history, because from there, that takes off into a new era of architectural theory uh, through the 80s. So that's sort of the arc of the book, kind of trying to to look at this um, split that was caused by the idea of uh, what I call psychological functionalism, but this idea of trying to make psyche into something that is functionally operated on by the building. Yeah, let's talk a little bit, um, back up and talk a little bit more about that. So so maybe just um, if you could just give our listeners some definitions, what is the architecture of good intentions? Um, how is that similar and different to the architecture of good behavior, the title of the book? Yeah. Um, and yeah, yeah, yeah um, great. So, you know, when it comes time to pick a title, <laughs> one has many ideas, um, but I, I just sort of settled with this one because to me, it really, as I say, kind of got to what I wanted to say with the book, um, giving the nod to Colin Rowe um, and his architecture of good intentions, which is uh, what he calls the modern movement sort of through the mid-century, which really was trying to um, improve conditions for the masses in many ways. So this idea of architecture, social project, and he's a beautiful writer, so I can't really do justice to some of the metaphors he uses of like, toys floating at the top of a swimming pool and things like that. And he's really a beautiful writer. Um, but so the, the question of, um, you know, how that shifted into a more, um, maybe a, a still idealistic, but maybe a more operational, uh, a more status quo tool of the health education and welfare research economy is sort of the tale of the book. And so mm-hmm. I liked making that connection in the title. And I think the, the my attempt in the introduction and conclusion was to kind of wrap that in and, and put this in as another piece of architectural history to say that these, you know, these things are not so divided. Um, so um, the, I think that to some extent, that impulse is still around today. The, the architecture of good intentions is still around, that you'll, mm-hmm. you'll find those people who, who still very much want to do good um, through architecture. And of course, I support wanting to do good with architecture, but I really tend to agree with Colin Rowe about the dangers of this flat-footed, naive attempt to use architecture as a tool for what? Um, as long as we can discuss you know, in whose interests it's being used and with which ideologies and toward which types of politics and, and have it be quite overt. I think that that's uh, kind of okay, but I'm, I'm certainly frightened by a lot of architecture that's done to manipulate people in a lot of these discussions. And you just, you know, try to open it up into a question of the politics and 
ideology and it's, it's not available. Um, So would you say the case studies and the book, the institutional typologies, are they, were they explicit about what they were trying to do or were they more? So there's there's a real mix. Um, You know, the, the historian always sitting here and saying it's complicated. Um, There were very different actors involved. Mm -hmm. So certainly, you know, in a case of the legislation, the legislation was quite obvious about what it was trying to do. Um, most of the hospital administrators are quite um, overt about what they're trying to do. I think there's a lot of that in the first chapter on hospitals, where the hospital administrators are having a very uh, overt conversation about trying to make patients malleable and to try to you know make things move move around smoothly and this kind of thing. Um, I think in the later cases, it gets, you know, things like the conversation about race disappears almost entirely by the time you get to Oscar Newman. So Newman's work on urban policing certainly has a lot of racial overtones, his work with the New York City Housing Authority police force, things like that. But through the book and through most of his public remarks by then, you know, so it's more manipulative, you know, if we, if we define manipulation as I'm not telling you what my ends are, mm-hmm. right? Everybody always has ends. That's normal. Uh, it's manipulative right. if it's not clear to you what my ends are. And so by Newman, it's all become very theatrical and very poetic. Um, we're unlocking the natural tendencies of the human. It's the, the discussion of racial elements of policing is not overt at all. So there's a, there's a mix of people. And I think most of the people had pretty good intentions. But again, the point would be that that can be really dangerous. Mm-hmm. Right. Um. So are there any other cases that you would characterize as being manipulative, whether consciously or unconsciously? I mean, the the worst manipulation, of course, and by far my least favorite chapter to write was the prisons chapter, where the um, sort of behavioral psychology being used uh, is quite dark. Um, And I think the communication with the inmates was probably quite Um, in some of the therapeutic penology was quite misleading, uh, very much the, this will make you free Mm -hmm. and, uh, this is for your own good. And you are, you are learning here. The inmates mostly do seem to have, so, but I would like to give credit to the inmates from the articles that I read. It seems like they did to some extent see through it. So I don't know how manipulative that is, but Mm -hmm. the, the impulse on that side of the wardens and the federal Bureau of Prisons um, was pretty unpleasant, though at the same time, you know, we have, I think in the book, I talk about Robert Summers' objections to the way that went down. So, you know, it, it's not that this uh, type of work was, you know, it, if I'm giving the impression that this work was not controversial at the time that it was going on, um, that's wrong. It, it was always critical. You know, mm-hmm. the community mental health centers had a lot of critics. The hospitals had a lot of critics. Um, this was never an uncontroversial program, set of programs. Can you say some more about how were, how these experiments in prison architecture were similar and different from, um, the ones in hospitals and community mental health? Yeah, centers? I think the, the biggest source of similarity would come through some of the people like Robert Summer or some of the architecture firms, um, Perkins and Will, SOM, uh, Skidmore, Owings and Merrill, um, and Caudill Rowlett Scott did a lot of work in these areas as well. Of working on several typologies, and um, there's a discussion like from Skidmore, Owings and Merrill about how they're learning from 
uh, from factories to hospitals and, and moving on from there. Or, you know, I think it's Robert Summer who overtly says, let's look to community mental health centers for ideas to how we can improve prisons. And, and he certainly meant it well. He wrote a book, but his, the arc of his career is pretty interesting, the way that he started out thinking that, you know, idealistically, that these ideas of personal space and environmental psychology could be used to improve prisons. Um, and then he does some work for prisons and does some reports. And then he, you know, ends up writing um, one essay and then the book Hard Architecture and How to Humanize It, I think it's called, where he really mm-hmm. comes out against what's happening in prisons and, and really makes the case that um, I think he stops just shy of wanting to abolish them, but, but really is, is very much um, changed his mind about them. So, you know, I don't, it was an ongoing struggle in writing the book that, you know, it's not, it's not a direct linear connection between these cases. They're arranged chronologically mostly, though they have some overlap, but it's certainly, I'm certainly not um, making a case that they're, they're um, causally linked. Um, so, so they're not, so, but, but they are, re, but they're related thematically, certainly. And you compare and you can yeah, for sure. and contrast them. Yeah, for sure. And as I say, there's think, a number yeah, of yeah, figures yeah. who are in more than one, you know, more than one chapter who are working on more than one typology. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and there are people, you know, so then for somebody just to stick with him, someone like Robert Summer certainly saw them as equivalent. Uh, he did a lot of work. You know, one of the other typologies that if the book had been very long might have fit in was dormitories. Uh, and Carla Yanni has just written a mm-hmm. fantastic book on the history mm-hmm. of dormitories. But Robert Summer uh, and Zim Vanderen as well did a lot of work on dormitories as well and saw certainly saw lessons um, from dormitories to prisons and from prisons to dormitories. So it's, it's mostly through the work of the actual humans um, that things are that things are shared, that people were looking, you know, people were looking, it's, it's hard to make a a huge generalization about, you know, we're talking in each case, we're talking about at least a thousand buildings. So it's, it's hard to make a a statement about, you know, they all follow each other or something just because the diversity of any given typology is quite large, but um, the sort of principles that were the ideals of the people who were um, running them uh, are the place to look for, for similarities. And the other one would be, you know, Clyde Dorset worked on putting together his own standards for, he was the one who was at the National Institute of Mental Health approving the drawings uh, so that the projects could get funding for the community mental health centers. And he started to work on uh, patterns for that, um, the, some of which were then uh, included with um, Christopher Alexander's, <clears throat> excuse me, pattern language. So there are things like that and there are trends, but, you know, it's just so much material and one certainly uh, would wish that there was, um, you know, each of these cases could be a delightful book in its own. And I definitely struggled in working on this to try to keep it small and to not, you know, as I'm doing now, get distracted. Well, it's complicated. And then there was this guy and, oh, but this other person disagreed and didn't feel that way. So you can't yeah, really say right. <laughs> it's, it's simply a lot of people and a lot of money and a lot of buildings to, to say something really simple. But I'm hoping that it sets up for other people to come in. Well, I think my, my hope would be that the book sets up for other people to come in and look at these architects individually and look at these cases more individually. 
It seemed to me that the that the fact that they these were publicly funded projects um, was really important, and especially you know if you want to think about them as as sort of connecting to some kind of political ideology. I it's really funny you mentioned dormitories because as you were talking, I'm realizing that. Um, I went to college at Vassar and I um, moved into this building called Fairy House that was designed by Marcel Breuer in the 1950s. And it was all very open and it was run as a cooperative. And the architecture absolutely changed my college experience from living in the more traditional dormitories. But the federal government wasn't funding that, you know, that was being driven by private donors and, and, and things like that. Um, and it, it and it certainly wasn't designed with the aim of well it was designed with the aim of being a more inclusive space and a place where lower income students could live and things like that but um, it it was not designed with the aim of sort of controlling the behavior of significant portions of the population yeah. um, anyway I just wondered if you could if you could talk a little bit about why why the public funding is so important and why there yeah, are so many acronyms um, in so this book. So another genesis story for the book would be my youthful dissatisfaction with uh, excitement and dissatisfaction with reading Mary McLeod's essay, The Architecture and Politics of the Reagan Era, and general sort of Marxist mm-hmm. and post-structuralist um, explanation of architecture's relationship to power that were available to me when I was in school. I kind of sat there as an American going, yeah, but it's, you know, power is a lot more complicated, isn't it? And so really wanting to look into something, mm-hmm. you know, in more detail to see how, how do shifts in presidential administration change these kinds of priorities at the health, education and welfare level? And how does architecture support that? How does it not support that? How does, you know, a lot of the challenge, even just at the start of it, you start to think about it. A lot of the challenges that architectural projects just take so long. That if you come in, you know, so the book tells the story, you know, sort of mm-hmm. the mental health centers, like that, the funding gets rolling through John Kennedy's administration quickly, you know, we move, you know, it, by the time the, the buildings are really able to mm-hmm. be built, um, you know, you've really changed politics far, you know, have gone through the whole great society and at the other end, you know, and, and so they're delivered in a very different environment. Um, and the funding for things like staffing have been cut. And so it's really hard to say how architecture works as a political tool, you know, not the sort of, you know, there's a lot of writing about the monuments and uh, the palaces and architecture working as a, as a tool that way, as, a, as an image in that mm-hmm. way. And I think it still works, you know, the CUNY Mental Health Center's image that they put out was definitely very much a part of it. So I'm not saying it's image, I'm just saying, you know, uh, as a young architecture student wanting to look at like, okay, but the buildings, um, it's just a really uh, complicated and long arc to try to get a building project done within any given regime's ideology. And so then trying to think about, um, you know, the question of the acronyms and the particular nature of American governance in Mm -hmm. the post-war period and on through the Great Society, you know, there's writing on, and I'm not thinking of the author's name right now, but there's a book, I think, on the submerged state uh, and a lot of discussions of the franchise state and things like that. And so the, the nature of power in you know, the complicated democracy of the United States at that time is through these acronyms and is through these tools and players and 
really indirect, complicated, um, you know, just call it politics, right? So the, the acronyms are very much how things get done. The acronyms and the mm-hmm. sort of funding details are very much the way that it operates. And so the, you know, we're left then with, okay, but the question, you know, that started that is, so how does architecture relate to power in this mode? And so part of it is that, you know, the way that architecture stands in for times when we don't want to, for whatever reason, the labor politics of staffing grants are complicated. So we'll do buildings or the way that architecture gets this uh, moment mm-hmm. of being a bright image. But then when the building comes out, it's under a different regime that has abandoned it. Um, or then the kind of last thing I would say is that it always strikes me, uh, you know, I'll write this and I'll talk to people, how did it end? And I'll be like, so community mental health centers totally don't exist, except they totally do. They just don't look like that. Right. So it's, I, that's the other lesson is, you know, this hiding right. in plain sight quality of like, mm-hmm. we don't have the avant-garde architecture. We don't have the, you know, the desire to have a typology as familiar as the public, you know, post office or elementary school, which was part of the, the government language when they started the community mental health centers architecture. Um, you know, the desire to have a typology, to have a face for the fact that we care about mental health for each other. Um, that didn't happen, but community mental health centers are everywhere. Um, and more people are receiving mental health care than, you know, probably could have been imagined at the time. So is it successful? Is it not? Is it what they dreamed of having it be, that it would be inclusive and accessible and, and healing? Or is it what its critics said that it was, that it's repressive and a tool for state control and it's for pacification and you know, I will similarly leave that to others to debate, but. So well, I think you, it's you both. Like, I think that's, um, you can't that's say this, one way or the, the other, you know, um, right. trap. I'll just say it. That's the trap, right? It's both. You can't, are you against mental health? Mm-hmm. What kind yeah. of a monster would be against mental health, but it's totally used as a tool to repress and control. <laughs> you know, you're both right. Uh, and, and anything that doesn't move forward from that understanding, mm-hmm. Um, I'll just say it's unsatisfying to me. Let's talk a little bit more about the legacy of psychological functionalism. And and so what does happen to community hospitals, mental health centers, prisons, public housing? Um, If you kind of continue the story up to the present day, how do these institutional typologies um, turn out? Uh, hospitals are alive and well, um, or they were, <laughs> if I'd given this, if I'd given this interview, uh, before mm-hmm. COVID, um, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe they're not so much anymore. And maybe, maybe I'm writing, I have written this book at the moment of their demise, but, um, you know, certainly when I finished the book, they were alive and well, um, mental health centers are, are, mm-hmm. you know, semi ubiquitous of some kind, you know, um, prisons have only exploded, uh, as in grown, um, public housing has certainly suffered mm-hmm. a more complicated, um, you know, similar, the sort of diffusion into a franchise state, a sort of neoliberal voucher system, but the ideas of, uh, crime prevention through environmental design, which they call SEPTED. So SEPTED is ongoing. Public crime housing. Through environmental design. There's an international group that will accredit an architect or other practitioner in this. Um, yeah, and the sort of, you know, urban theory certainly is ongoing, you know, the interest in how to design better urban systems, uh, in a behavioral mode, I think is, you know, um, 
accelerating during coronavirus, this idea of measuring whether people are standing far apart, all of that. So um, I think, you know, the answer is the same kind of, it's less visible. The psychological functionalism is, it's no longer tied to a, a particular unusual looking typology, um, but it's, it's in a lot of things. It's in, um, of course, it's in things like grocery stores, you know, the idea of how you prefer to shop with your right hand side and all these kinds of things that influence the layout of items on the shelves. You know, that was sort of an earlier one, but um, you know, to the, the online world that many of us are immersed in is largely driven through sort of behavioral insights um, and intended overtly, although they don't tell consumers too often, but when they discuss it, you know, they're um, emotionally manipulative. Uh, I talk to the undergrads about this and always have the conversation with them about the experience of deciding mm-hmm. to turn the collar off on your cell phone and how differently uh, your interaction with this intimate device is mm-hmm. when it's no longer available to manipulate you through color. Uh, they always find that an experience. Um, most of them have already done it. And so it's a conversation that we have about um, user interface at that point. But yeah, I mean, I think. So, so, so psychological functionalism is alive and well and pervades yeah, every the, aspect of modern ones. life is what it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, I think it has, it has done well for itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, do you have any, are, are there any, um, lessons that we can take from these experiments at these institutional typologies? Um, are there any, are there any lessons that we can apply to, um, to look to navigating the world that we live in where every, where everything is, is designed, you know, to influence our behaviors or nudge us one way or another, or get us to buy things, yeah, or, you know, you know, go um, ahead and return those to kinds of things. 1960s consciousness raising from which this comes from and just say, you know, I think being aware of it and uh-huh. having it ha- be a discussion and refusing a lot of the false dichotomies of, you know, is mental health good or bad is uh, psychology good or bad? You know, of course it's both. And trying to be aware of, of how tools are being used and be aware of uh, what's being left out and thinking about, you know, I think one of the things I'm excited to, to turn to now is thinking about, uh, as I was talking about, sort of emotionally manipulative. So how these these works then on through the 80s and 90s started to look at mm-hmm. more embodied, more emotional discussions, some of which came out of um, sort of World War II military research anyway, but, you know, strange ways that they chose to define you know, the, I think it's called like the five blue ribbon emotions, um, that those were at the time largely of concern mm-hmm. for the military. They were concerned with, you know, aggression and uh, fear and that kind of thing. And to what extent those are the kinds of emotions uh, that we then take as, you know, rarely, uh, rarely do we question that, like, maybe those aren't the primary emotions um, and think about what kind of what kind of assumptions we're making with our psychology and with our tools. And, and even I, you know, when I teach the undergrads, I talk to them a lot about functionalism at all and say, you know, why is everything presumed around the idea that work is the goal, you know, that being functional, that being productive, um, are you in a factory? You know, how, how can we think about humanity otherwise? And mm-hmm. how can we think about models of psychology that are very different, you know, nonviolent models of psychology? Um, so, 
I guess that's the lesson is just, I don't, you know, I don't have a good lesson. Just try to try to keep our eyes open. Yeah. Consciousness raising. I'm an educator. Consciousness, right? No, yeah, consciousness raising. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, um, Joy, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, could you tell us a little yeah, bit about uh, what you're I'm working start, on now? I've you kind of just alluded on, to uh, it. Uh, history of ergonomics from a critical perspective. And so, as I say, kind of tracing this connection um, backward. So environmental psychology is kind of their roots in World War II kinds of studies of cockpits, of uh, life preservers, and all these kinds of interfaces that were highly emotional uh, and highly physical and highly social, um, so studies of group behavior as well. Um, but moving that from sort of the wartime research and the origins of ergonomics and uh, in sort of coming together between psychology and aviation medicine and uh, human factors. So there was a lot of factory logics involved, you know, moving forward through open office designs and then through accessibility and definitely landing in some way, though those chapters are more unclear to me right now, um, definitely landing in the land of screens at some point and talking about screen culture and how that, how it shapes architecture, how it shapes society and which assumptions it's making about bodies and emotions and gender. I'm looking forward to <laughs> finally feeling uh, far enough along in my career to start talking about gender more more clearly mm -hmm. um, and race. So uh, that's that's the future trajectory of the book is to, mm -hmm. to keep plumbing this functionalization of psyche. Well, that sounds like a really great project. Thanks. Um, Joy, I'd like to thank you for being on the show today. I really enjoyed it. 